Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, all you lovely people. So I bring you another episode, and this one is going to be quite different because we're not looking at a wine region or any grapes, but instead on investment, fine wine investment. I wonder how many of you are holding back any wines to see how they age and benefit later in life, or is anybody actually putting any aside to possibly sell? Now, of course, the fine wine investment world is massively dominated by Bordeaux wines, but certainly the rest of the world is opening up and massively increasing, which makes things a little bit more exciting. But one thing to remember is that collecting is not actually just for the rich. Now, for example, there are wine merchants. In fact, John, my guest, does mention one of them in London. That's Berry Bros and Rudd, along with another one, which is Lee and Sanderman's, that I know offer investment plans. And they're anything from even £50, £100 a month, and they will handle your investments. They're super reputable. And with things like investment plans, you're often invited to events or wine tastings. Of course, you can further your knowledge in fine wine investment and of course, try the wines most importantly. And don't forget, investing in wine, the profits are capital gains tax-free. What is not to love? If you are interested to see the top 100 most sought after wines, you can go to LiveX, which is the Fine Wine 100 Index. So it's tracking those wines. And actually, apparently, since 2003, the prices have trebled. Although, since 2011, things have dropped down by about 15%. As always, it might not be crazy volatile, but with investments, it's not always smooth sailing. But certainly go and check out that website, because if you're not sure what the hell you would even invest in, that is certainly a good place to start. Now, just to get us all in the mood, I decided to look up and see what were some of the most expensive bottles ever sold. So I bring these to you. Get ready for this. So in 2018, a bottle of DRC, Domaine Romani Conti, which is the top Burgundy, sold for $558,000. Now, to give you an idea of why that sold so highly, there are only 600 bottles made. And also that vintage was the last vintage where they were using the older vines before they started planting younger vines. Another wine, back in 2000, they sold a bottle of Screaming Eagle 1992. So this is from Napa Valley, the most expensive cult wine there for $500,000. And that, quite simply, it was the winery's first vintage. Then, if we go over to Bordeaux, one of the first growths, there's only five of them, Chateau Mouton Rothschild, their 1945 vintage sold, this is in 2006, for $310,000. Now, the reason for that This was apparently one of the smallest Bordeaux vintages since 1915. They had a really terrible late spring frost and actually the grapes got super, super ripe. So an amazing vintage as it turns out and with hardly any of it around. They also put a V 
on the label to symbolise victory because it was the end of the war. Now to finish off, one more, a champagne. I'm really not sure how this would taste. This is the Piper Heinsek. 1907 and not sure when it sold but it sold for $275,000 and the reason for that it was part of a shipwreck from 1916 so in the late 90s 200 bottles were found at the bottom of the ocean so let me introduce to you my guest he is a litigation attorney in Dallas Texas And I came to know of John through Instagram. So his handle is at Attorney Som. And he gives amazing tips, amazing wine advice on fine wine investment and talks in loads of detail about the amazing, wonderful wines that he's drinking. And I thought, well, I've wanted to invest for a really long time, but haven't quite got round to it. So why not ask somebody with amazing experience that can guide us on our journey? Now, before I go to the chat with John, don't forget there is a competition running. You have to the 30th of August, 2021 to write a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. All the information is in the show notes and a winner will be picked and you will get a virtual tasting, including of course the wines with me. So guys, don't be shy, be creative with your literature and get involved. Right, are we ready to invest? Let's go over to the chat with John now. John, thank you so much for joining me. I'm very excited to learn the skills and everything you know so I can start investing properly. Are you ready to teach me everything? Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me today. (laughs) Now, first of all, before we get into that, I have to ask you what I ask everybody, which is how did you get into wine? Obviously, you're an attorney. I mean, it goes with the territory, right? Drinking delicious wines. But did you like wines before even studying to get into law? How did it happen? Sure. It actually happened relatively late. And so ah. certainly in college and law school, I would have alcohol socially, but it was mm-hmm. more uh, you know, beer and cocktails, things of mm-hmm. that nature. Uh, certainly once I started practicing law, there was more opportunity to drink wine mm-hmm. at work-related events. Okay. And so I would start tasting it. But again, it was more entry-level wine and nothing really special. Okay. But what happened was one of my colleagues is a, a pretty prominent attorney here, and uh-huh. I was working on a case with him. Uh, he was doing a lot of work for clients like Oprah Winfrey, and so he had very big clients. Uh-huh. And I was working on a case with him, and we had a business dinner. And he had just come back from Napa, and then at the dinner he had ordered a special bottle of wine. It was a, an Opus One. Okay. And I'd never tried uh-huh. anything like that before. And that was, the, that was the introduction into fine wine, right? It was. And so I was just kind of blown away and had no idea that wine could taste like that. And so mm-hmm. within six months, I had gone to Napa myself. And then it kind of progressed from there. And that's how you got the bug. Okay, that's amazing. Do you know what? One of my first wines was an Opus One. I worked as a sommelier in in London in a New York-style steakhouse. And so the wine list was super Napa Valley-focused. And so some of my best introduction to wines was, you know, Harlan Estate. You're like, oh, that's... (laughs) 
absolutely. <laughs> it's a pretty nice place to be. Uh, and obviously Mandavis and all those things. So I totally understand. Okay, so by the way, anyone listening, obviously we're going to have wonderful wine investment advice. But I, I guess as well, we should just point out if people want legal advice. I mean, you lost me. I looked you up and it started mentioning on the website things like litigation and infringement. And I was like, I don't know what any of this is. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. And so you're a partner at Jackson & Walker, right? Yes. And I'm located in Dallas, Texas. Uh, we have offices throughout the state of Texas, but we do work nationally. And a lot of what I do is uh, data privacy counseling, okay. uh, cybersecurity and the like. Oh, and well, actually, also... we need that. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, mm-hmm. for sure. Especially with the uh, the GDPR, which I'm sure you've heard a lot about. Mm, and... I'm going to pretend yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then also things like uh, patent infringement, litigation, trademarks, copyrights, things of that nature. Yeah, well, you're going to be kept very busy. And then obviously in between that, we should also point out, are you still studying your diploma, WSCT? You're a student still. I have one exam left. Oh, is that the big one? It is. Yes. It's D3, unit okay, 3. Okay, yeah. Bring me back to my diploma days. Okay. When is unit 3 happening? Uh, it's the end of October. So mm-hmm. I've got a few months yet, but okay. it's nearing the end of my online course. Okay. So it's it's getting down to the wire, but I think I'm on track. So my advice to anybody studying their diploma, when you have to write the written questions and you need to write about whatever region, just say, you know, the terroir is rather varied, um, lots of clay and gravel soils with little outcrops of limestone, and you, the chances are you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> if in well, doubt, that's good advice. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I think it, I think it works. I'm sure you know more than that. You'll be absolutely sorted. So right, you tasted your Opus One. You taste a little bit more Napa Valley wines. It went from there. And then obviously you got the wine bug. And at some point you decided to invest. So, I mean, did you start investing with Napa wines? Sure. Well, it started more just trying to build a personal collection. Okay. And Mm -hmm. wines for personal consumption. And I've actually done my own videos and such about about wine collecting and some of the mistakes that I've made and Ah, advice for others. And one of the mistakes I made, I was so focused on Napa in California that the first few years when I purchased, mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily all collectible wines, but mm. I did purchase way too much of one particular variety, one too mm-hmm. much, you know, way too much California. Mm-hmm. And then two or three years later, I discovered France and Italy and some other areas that I liked as well. And then at that point, my cellar was imbalanced. Mm. Okay. And so I think it's important to probably do as much exploration as you can before you start committing substantial funds to a collection, mm-hmm. just because yeah. you don't want to end up in a situation where you, you lack diversity. You know, Certainly they talk about in terms of investments being diversified, and the same is true with respect to your wine collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in terms of now, the fact that you have diversified and you've been doing this for how long? <laughs> how long have you been purchasing wine and investing in it? Uh, probably seven or eight years. Okay. How many wines do you have? it's been more for investment. Well, <laughs> Do you even know? I, I would say it's kind of a dual tracks. I still have a, a sizable amount that I purchased just for myself, for personal okay, consumption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then Which there's also important. some for investment. Yeah, okay. And how do you decide what are you going to drink now and what do you think is worthy of investment? What are you thinking? How are you making that decision? That is, I think, one of the most important things for people to do is to decide their their goal and their objective. Okay. If they're really interested in investment, then that really, really focuses the types of wine that you'd want to purchase and how mm-hmm. you go about it. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times what people will do is they'll have a collection and then they'll go to resell it. 
but they'll find that there's not so much interest because the provenance is somewhat questionable in the eyes of an investor. And, mm. you know, they don't have the original wooden cases and it's not yep. the, the top notch blue chip first growth wines, like first mm-hmm. growth Bordeaux, for example, mm-hmm. or other highly collectible wines. And so when you're talking about really purchasing something with an eye towards investment, in return on your investment, that's probably what you want to focus on would be original wooden cases of blue chip wines like First Growth Bordeaux, mm-hmm. some of the top Burgundy, like uh, DRC in Loire, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, things of that nature. Yeah. Um, you know, Vega Sicilia in Spain, but it's going to be a very, very small list of names relative to the overall universe of wines. And also you mentioned about the box. If you look on lists, people will see OWC, won't they? Exactly. Original wooden case. So that's what people should make sure if they're going to buy it, that it says that really, to help with investment. Exactly. That will make the the resale a little bit easier and uh, probably make sure that you don't get, you know, take a little bit of a haircut or a discount when you go to resell those wines. Now, in terms of storage, of course... You can store wine in your home, you could build a cellar, you can buy fridges and set the temperature. And obviously, if it's a smaller collection, it's easy to do. Or, you know, you can pay to put it in storage. But in terms of for investment purposes, when they start saying, you know, how the wine has been stored, etc. Do you think, again, it makes a lot more sense to make sure it's in proper storage? Or do you think it would matter? Would it be okay if you had it in your own cellar as long as the you could verify that the temperature and the humidity was good? Would it make a difference, do you think? Possibly. I, I think certainly the better approach would be to have it in a, a professional warehouse mm-hmm. or a place that specializes in that. Mm-hmm. And some people may do a little bit more due diligence and insist on that. Yeah. Uh, cer- certainly if you have an elaborate setup at your house and it's capable of accommodating a large collection and you could show photographs and such, then it, it might be okay. But it would definitely be a little bit easier for you and you'd probably have less hassle when you went to sell them if it was with a professional storage facility. But then also with private wine storage, they can be really accessible in terms of you can order wines, can't you, from specific wineries and then that winery can get it sent direct to the private wine storage so you could be anywhere in the world, right? And they can handle a lot of that as well, can't they? Exactly. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about being home to accept the delivery and it it is a lot less hassle on, on many levels. Do you find that they're very expensive, though, or actually really not in the long run if you're in the investment game? It's hardly anything. I would say, I mean, they can be depending on how much you have, but mm. it's, yeah, I think in, in terms of percentages of your investment, it would be relatively modest mm-hmm. just because when you're talking about buying, you know, cases of 12 original wooden cases of some of the top first growth Bordeaux, for example, or, or mm-hmm. Burgundy, that's going to be a large amount of money. And so... The per bottle charge for storage would be relatively modest, although not completely insignificant. Now, you say purchasing, say, 12 bottles at a time. Do you always buy in 12? Or do you think actually for somebody starting out, it would make a lot more sense to buy three bottles or just six bottles? Sure. I think I don't always buy 12. I Mm -hmm. oftentimes buy three. And in fact, that's one of the things that I like to recommend to people is that they, especially if they're interested in potentially consuming some of the wines themselves rather than just reselling all of them. Certainly with the amount of time you need to age some of these wines, Mm -hmm. if you're aging wines for 10 years, for example, before you start drinking them, which is not at all uncommon for Bordeaux, Mm -hmm. and you buy 12 bottles a year, every single year, you'll quickly have 120 bottles of just that one wine Mm -hmm. before you could even start 
tasting them. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I think you would need a massive storage facility to accommodate all that, for example. <laughs> so <laughs> well, you just need that, to drink quite quickly. Yeah, but that, that's definitely something to keep in mind. And so that's why it's important to know your objective. If you're okay. If you're just tasting or if you're just purchasing so that you can have some nice wine and if it goes up in value, you might sell it, mm-hmm. then definitely I would recommend probably three. Mm-hmm. But if you're really hardcore into investing and you know you're going to want to turn the wine and it's just for investment purposes, yeah. then maybe the case would be appropriate. Okay. And in terms of choosing your wines, you've already said for serious investment just stick with you know the first growth Bordeaux's or I guess the cult wines from Napa you've already said you know the Vega Sicilias but do you listen to wine critics do you see what points have been given to top wines or do you think oh no I'm not interested I'm going to just follow different trackers or I'm going to make my own mind up based on my own palate what are your thoughts there with wine critics Sure. Again, I think it's important to keep in mind your objective. If it's something for personal consumption, then I tend to place less weight on that. Mm-hmm. And for example, there's one or two of those those critics whose palates align more closely with mine. Mm-hmm. And so I tend to rely more on those, especially for personal consumption. But for investment, I think it is something that you have to keep an eye on mm-hmm. just because it has such a significant impact on the on the market for the wines. So it's definitely something to keep in mind. For example, during En Premour for Bordeaux, mm-hmm. oftentimes what will happen is is the spring following the, the harvest, mm-hmm. the wines will be tasted by the journalist and the wine critics and they'll get their scores. And those scores will heavily impact the pricing mm-hmm. in the market for the wines. And so especially during that time period, like April to June, the month or after the harvest, it's very, very important to to study those scores and, and try to get an eye towards where the market might be heading. Okay. So it is worth putting a little bit of time in into investigating as well. I suppose that would be the same for vintages as well. We know in the wine industry, some of the top Bordeaux, you don't really want to be drinking them for maybe 20 years. But if it's not a great vintage, it's not going to have that ageability. So I presume you would say as well, not to be putting any money unless you are aware of its ageability and its vintage, right? Absolutely. Again, if it's purely for investment, you're going to want to focus on the, the strong vintages mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. not spend a lot of money on on kind of dark horse or off vintages. <laughs> Unless it's for yourself, maybe. A little bit exactly. Mm. Yeah, they're good good values and things that you can enjoy earlier. And they're, they're great to buy for personal consumption, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't want to invest a lot of money in those vintages. And where are you getting your wines from? Are you part of winery clubs? Are you going to auctions? Well, you know, again, somebody that's a complete novice that's like, hey, I want to start investing. Where are they going to get their wines from? Sure. I think it would depend on their market. I know in, in London, certainly, I think it is it Berry Brothers Red is certainly mm-hmm. a well-known yeah. mm-hmm. establishment. And yep. so we have comparable places in the United States and in places where I can get uh, futures yeah uh things of that nature oh i was just going to point if anyone who doesn't know futures that's basically upcoming vintages where the they're not bottled you don't quite know what the wine might finish as but of course you get it at a better price so yeah sorry carry on futures Mm -hmm. right now and and that's really big for for bordeaux i know we'll talk about that a little bit more Mm -hmm. later but Mm -hmm. uh for for bordeaux one of the big events each year is the on premier and that's the the wine futures process and so that's just going on now it started probably in June with the sales and then April and May with the evaluation by the critics and journalists. 
And so right now, for example, they're selling futures of the 2020 vintage of Bordeaux. Which, well, no, we're going to talk about vintages, I think, with Bordeaux in a bit. I think I might leave that one. Now, I have a question. As you're not officially in the wine industry, for someone like myself, there is potential for me to be invited to a lot of these on-premier tastings and get involved quite easily. But as somebody who's not in the industry, is it as easy? How how do people get to go and taste on-premier? Can they taste on-premier? So I... Actually, it might be an exception just due to my social media presence. I okay. did attend an event in Dallas, an on-premier mm-hmm. event, uh, mm-hmm. a while back. Yeah. And so I think I'm I'm starting to be included a little bit more of those. Maybe I'm a little bit of a hybrid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think it is difficult because for the most mm-hmm. part, that's open to the trade. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so I think for the... For the individual, it's probably a situation where they'll need to monitor the the articles. I know certainly things like Wine Spectator and Bloomberg and a lot of the mm-hmm. media will cover the events and will report on the vintage and some of the, the findings and recommendations from the wine critics. So I think to the extent you can't taste them yourselves, it's important to just do the research and be mindful of of what the reporting is uh, is suggesting for that particular vintage or for the certain producers. Yeah, okay. And I I mentioned winery clubs. Are you part of any winery clubs? Is it worth it? I started out doing a lot of that, especially with the California wineries and maybe a little bit in Oregon. But I actually have a problem now where I have much more wine than I have storage space. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really, Mm. exactly, yeah. It it, it adds up quickly when you start getting recurring shipments from a number of places. Ah, okay. And your space goes quickly. So you kind of sign up and say, hey, I'm happy for you just to send me xyz and it just kind of keeps on coming it's like a subscription that's how it worked initially mm-hmm. right and then since then you know I, I quickly got out of the habit of doing that and then i started doing more of the the mailing list where you at least have the discretion to okay. either say yes or no mm-hmm. so you have a little bit more control over it and some of the higher end wines are more mailing list rather than wine club okay but yeah. then with the mailing list Often you can't buy the cult wines or the top wines unless you buy at least a minimum of their baby wine, right? <laughs> a lot of the time? Sometimes. It, it depends on the, the okay. particular producer. But okay. like with Harlan, I think you can buy just the, the big one. Okay. That's interesting. Again, I'm not part of any mailing list. I like to drink wine, but not. I don't tend to like to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> no, Common I problem understand. for me. Yeah, anyway. So if you've got all these wines and quite a lot of wines, what do you use to track the wines? Are you using an app or specific software? Yes, I use Seller Tracker. Oh, Seller Tracker, yeah, yeah. Probably the most famous one, right? There's also E-Sommelier and Vino Cell, but I've never, I've, I've only ever seen Seller Tracker. So how does that work for you, Seller Tracker? Sure. I actually prefer the app a little bit more than I do okay. the, the software. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the app is something called Corks, C-O-R-K-Z. Ah, and, that's this, okay, right, fine. They're connected. And I'm not okay. sure if it's actually seller tracker or not, but it at least integrates with my seller tracker. Okay. And it's compatible with it, so I can access it through that. Mm. And that's typically what I use because I use my phone so much more than my computer these days. I'm usually on the go, and then mm-hmm. that way I can access it whenever I need to. Now, what happens if you have something investment and it's in storage, and actually you decide you really want to drink it? How quickly can you get hold of that bottle out of storage? Would they have to deliver it to you, that bottle, or would you have to go there and get it? Uh, they could deliver it, but I'm, I'm usually there once or twice a week anyway, so um, <laughs> I would just Your local hangout. <laughs> exactly, because the place where I store mine is, it's a little bit like a country club for wine drinkers. Okay, and so that's we cool. Have, 
Yeah, we have memberships and then we'll just go there and hang out and drink wine. And Oh, um, that's fun. I don't, yeah. well, I was going to say, I don't know if we have that in England. I mean, I haven't heard of anyone talking about anything that cool. But then, as I said, this is actually quite new to me. I, I, don't, I have my wine fridge downstairs. That's it, you know. What do you think is the ideal temperature for storing wine i mean i oh wait you're going to do fahrenheit aren't you so i say 12 what's 12 degrees celsius do you know should i go yeah we we might have to convert it for me it would be (laughs) (laughs) 55 degrees fahrenheit okay um 12 c to f let's see oh 53.6 and you're yeah 55 so yeah probably between 12 yeah okay so between 12 and 13 okay good we're agreed and from what i believe as long as there's at least 50 percent humidity you're kind of good but actually too much humidity like if it's way too high 80 90 percent then it can start damaging all the labels and peeling them off right you could get mold on there too you could get mold growth and you definitely wouldn't want anything like that if you're going to try to resell the wine later i've heard a really good way to keep the wine labels in tip-top shape is to wrap it in cling film not the most glamorous but nice and simple do you do that it with does your, work any well. of your wines i don't but I, I do think it's a good idea do you want to know another one i heard Turns out I'm an expert now. No, <laughs> I read stuff. I just don't do it. Um, using extra strong hold hairspray. Oh, really? Mm. What do you think of that? I haven't heard of that one, but. <laughs> okay, yeah. You investigate with it. When you go to your wine storage club next, ask anyone if they're using extra strong hold hairspray. Okay. Yeah. The extra hold is critical. I say, the reason I say that is because that's what I read. Again, you're talking to somebody that just remembers it and um, okay. has zero experience. So I'd actually quite like you to go and investigate this for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> have to buy the hairspray too. So I'm not, I'm not well, big on hairspray. But. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming you probably don't need it, but it's not very expensive. And actually, if you think about it, it might be a cheaper option than cling film itself and, that's and quicker. A, that's true. You could just yeah. spray it down and move on. I know, exactly. So many options. <laughs> now, okay. Obviously, we've talked about the first gross and wines that are going to be very, very expensive. But you obviously, for your personal drinking, are not going to be drinking, well, let's talk in dollars. You're not going to be drinking $150 wines, 300 uh, pound, oh, blah, pound, dollar, $300 um, wines. So, you must be drinking, let's say, $30 wines, $40 wines. So do you have some favorites that you like drinking that are slightly more affordable that one could crack open on a Saturday night? I do. If you're looking in uh, Bordeaux, for example, I mm-hmm. really like uh, Chateau Lagrange. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's one. Yeah. And they have a, a second wine, uh, La Fief, that okay. that's also a very, very good value. And so that's definitely a producer I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the one thing that we do to make the whole process more affordable, but yet to try very, very nice wines, is we have a wine tasting group. Okay. And so we'll schedule regular events. And so I could contribute one wine, but then there'll be seven of my friends yeah. there. Mm-hmm. They'll each put one in as well. So you could put in a more expensive wine, and then you only have to pay for the one, but then you can try up to eight. That's a very good idea. I suppose that also is a really good idea for people who actually not only want to taste a variety get to know different wines and see what their palate enjoys but i suppose also aged wines because in theory if you're talking about aging wine so it's not just for investment a lot of people want to buy wines hold them back and they might want to enjoy them in 10 15 years time but actually maybe you don't like aged wines (laughs) you might think you do i 
I appreciate all wines from working in the wine industry for such a long time. I, I do appreciate all. But my palate, I do prefer wines with loads of fruit. And actually, as it ages too much and it starts getting a little bit thinner and it's a little bit more barnyardy, maybe more mushroomy, more savory, more of that tertiary notes. When that's too much, some people adore it. And now I want the fruit. So, you know, there's definitely a happy balance for me. I wouldn't want wines that are too old, but I've drunk some wines that are pretty well aged and people are loving them so you know i suppose a club gives people the opportunity to see what do they really want that's true and that's another example of why it's important to do a bunch of tasting before you start devoting significant resources to to your collection or to investment because you definitely want to know your own palate very very well before you make Mm -hmm. significant purchases Mm -hmm. just so that you know that you know, if worse comes to worse and the investment doesn't pan out, you can always drink it and you want to make sure that you can enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense. Now, do you buy everything um, duty paid delivery? So f- for people that would be often the initials DPD, or do you actually buy some wines in bond? Uh, typically with delivery for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Just because it's easier and it's done. And then as soon as you want to drink it, it's all sorted. For anybody who doesn't understand, in bond is obviously, well, I assume actually it needs to be put in a bonded warehouse. So it would have to be a special storage facility. Again, this is a slight little guess, but it means obviously you don't have to pay the duty until it actually gets sold. So you do save obviously a certain amount of money, but you wouldn't be able to Correct. drink it until you pay the duty. So you're, you're like, let's just keep it simple. Exactly. And in many of those instances, sometimes the purchaser may never even see the wine. It could just Mm -hmm. stay in bond and then they could even have the option to potentially resell it before they accept it. Yeah, that is true. But of course, if I suppose if you're if you're planning on drinking it, then yeah, it might be easier just to pay due to pay delivery and it's ready to go in your facility, in your storage and you can drink it. Now, I find it so interesting for anybody who who is wanting to go to the auction houses. I don't know if you have these in America. We have actually you definitely have Christie's. That's one of our most famous ones. We do. We have auction houses as well. Yeah. Is Sotheby's in America as well? It is. Yep. Yes. They're both in New York. Yeah. But we have them <laughs> in England. There's Bonhams, there's Chiswick Auctions, there's Seckford Wines. Are there other big ones that you guys have for our American audience that are listening? Sure. So Hart, Davis Hart, mm-hmm. H-A-R-T, Davis Hart in Chicago mm-hmm. is okay. a big one. Mm-hmm. They do a pretty good job with their auctions for sure. So, uh, And then, of course, Christie's and Sotheby's and, and so forth. Plenty of places to keep an eye. And actually, I, I often, for anybody who's interested, you said about reading thedrinksbusiness.com as well. They're always talking about what's being sold in Christie's and what's what job lot is coming up, what collection and stuff. So you can kind of keep track of that if that excites you. Well, certainly I, I like being signed up to Drinks Business because they've always got some news about whatever fine wines or cult wines or something that's going on. So are you signed up to thedrinksbusiness.com? Not yet, but I'll definitely have to take ah. a look at it. Yeah, I mean, it's just more news. I mean, again, it depends if you've already got another, you know, Harper's News. But I think it's quite nice. Daily, you get an email with everything that's going on and mostly wine related, but they will throw in some beer stuff and they will throw in a little bit of spirits here, there and whatever. But yeah, always news and who's bought what house. And of course, you know, you mentioned Bordeaux. I mean, (laughs) some new investor, Bordeaux houses are constantly being sold, aren't they? Somebody new owns some other new chateau. It's uh, always ever evolving and changing, right? New investment. (laughs) It is, definitely. Yeah, lots of news to keep up on, for sure. 
Now, just like the other episodes of this week, I have cut John's episode. So tomorrow's focus will be a little bit more towards Bordeaux investment and then, of course, Bordeaux, the region in general. Now, as we're talking about Bordeaux, I want to talk about La Place de Bordeaux because it's something that several people have asked me before in the past. What is it? Well, it's not actually a place. It doesn't actually exist. It is a distribution system selling the top wines from all around the world. But in fact, it doesn't actually sell directly to a consumer. It's very, very interesting. It's one of the world's oldest marketplaces. And this dates back centuries and centuries. So basically, the Bordeaux producers, they would not sell direct, as I mentioned. So they would sell to a middleman known as a courtier or a broker. And it was their job, and it still is, by the way, it was their job to understand the market, the economy, and work out basically what the demands will be of the wines, and then communicate this back to the chateaus. So the chateaus will then set their prices. The wines are sold super quickly through these brokers, through these courtiers, and they then have to go to the negotiants, which are also known now pretty much as wholesalers. So they go to the wholesalers and they sell the wines to them. So it's this amazing network that really allows wines to get all over the world. It is certainly seen as a little bit of an old-fashioned system, but it works and I can't imagine it going anywhere soon. So now it used to be all Bordeaux wines. However, back in 1998, the first non-Bordeaux wine was introduced. That was Almaviva, which is a Chilean wine, a collaboration between Mouton Rothschild and Concha y Toro. Following that, in 2004, Opus One was listed. And this is a collaboration, again, Mouton Rothschild, but with Robert Mandavi. So this is a Napa Valley why? Now, following that, you've got Super Tuscans, Masetto, a life-changing Merlot. There's Antonori's Salaya. There's also Ornolaya. And then going all the way down to Australia, Jim Barry's The Amar is also listed in La Place. So I mention that just because a lot of people ask questions about what it is. But also, if you get to know that, that'll also give you a little indication of what are some of the top wines in the world. So perhaps you'll find that useful. Now I've got a great wine quote to finish off today which I think really speaks to fine wine investment and it's by Jean Anthelme Brillat Savarin. I hope I pronounced his name right. He was a French lawyer politician but known as also the author of Physiology of Taste and he says Burgundy makes you think of silly things. Bordeaux makes you talk about them and Champagne makes you do them. Well, let's make sure we have all three of them. Thank you to all of you guys for listening. As I always say, please do share this podcast with your wine-loving friends. Subscribe if you haven't done already. I'm hoping you're going to be writing a review. And until the next episode of Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, cheers to you.